Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa puttang tammang sankhang namasami Tomorrow is the last full day and the retreat ends on Sunday. Just to, to remind you of the, the, this is nearing the end of the retreat. Is that, that perception is now in your consciousness. And so oftentimes that means the mind starts wandering around uh, thinking about what you're going to do after. And also the kind of tendency to not be so silent and uh, so forth. So they, to remember that, that we reflect on the, uh, the form of this retreat, the eight precepts, three refuges, the eight precepts. That's, our, that's what we've agreed uh, for this period of time that that carries us through to the to uh, Sunday, in which Sunday you take the five precepts, uh, which allows you to eat in the evening and to speak uh, any time you want to. <laughs> so uh, this. Just a reminder of of, uh, of a convention we're using for reflection, because uh, it's easy to uh, to to think it doesn't really matter, or to we have very good excuses, very good reasons for doing what we want to do. There's one thing I realize in the we're with, we're with modern people are so utterly reasonable, and uh, we're. We have good reasons for justifying everything and anything. <laughs> uh, and because we're reasonable, we, we can convince ourselves that we're right because we have good reasons for doing what we want. And so that means that it's, that it's right to do what we want. I can, be, I can justify anything I want to do. I'm, I'm a very reasonable person and very good at rationalizing and compromising and and all kinds of uh, gifts that I have, but in in meditation, I'm I'm trying to see this in uh, in a, in a in a context of of uh, the way one can just follow. You know, if you're if you consider yourself a reasonable person, then then you then when you want to just follow your desires. You have good. You make good reasons for doing it. And so this uh, this uh, it can be witnessed to and observed rather than than uh, say believed in so completely. In the monastery, sometimes we have some of the monks, uh, uh, nuns, have very good reasons. Like the other last week, I had to make a stand because uh, some of the monks, especially the bhikkhus, were, were being very uh, 
uh, kind of lazy about coming to the morning chanting. We get up, we're supposed to get up at 4 and be in the sala at 4.30 for the morning chanting. And, and uh, sometimes, and so two days in a row, I, uh, I, I go there, I usually time it so that I leave my room about 25 after 4, so I can arrive in, uh, just a few minutes before 4.30. It gives everybody a chance to get inside the sala. Two mornings in a row, the reception room doors were locked. We couldn't find the key. The monk in charge of, of, the, uh, of opening the doors had, had was oversleeping or communications weren't being arranged. And, and then you'd go in, you'd get lonely in there alone. And, <laughs> Anagarik is, is embarrassing. They, we ordained some new anagarikas and everything, and all full of inspiration and eagerness, and, and then these monks not even bothering to come. And uh, so I gave a, a, a rousing talk. <laughs> <laughs> and when I asked all the monks why they weren't there for the morning chanting, they all had very good reasons excellent reasons and uh, and so it, it it was and they they felt that I was being a bit hard because I wasn't being reasonable about it but that's not the point in being reasonable but in in being able to get beyond just the reasons for doing for, for not getting up because we might have have been busy late in the night or whatever but in being able to get outside just this this it's a weakening kind of a wishy-washy reasonableness of life you have to if you know in one needs to put more effort into doing things when giving yourself surrendering to to the form that we we decide on to really take it and make it work and and not just uh, kind of do it half-heartedly or every time it doesn't quite in, fit into into your perceptions of being reasonable, you you adapt, you change it to fit your own ideas. Uh, and this is what we do. This is what mediocrity is all about, isn't it? Is why life gets so kind of uh, like bland uh, porridge or just tasteless soup. It doesn't. It uh, because we're, it's, we're being terribly reasonable about it all, but. There's no edge to it. There's no force behind it. One just kind of floats in a kind of miserable, uh, uh, bland, tasteless soup of life. Being righteous is also another problem because we can be right and then we think because we're right that that we are absolutely right. And uh, Lung Po Cha used to to have a statement in Thai. He would say, "Tuk de mai jing, jing de mai tu." And uh, this means in English, "That's right, but not true," or "That's true, but not right." <laughs> And it's a good reflection because, uh, for example, I can be right 
in what I'm saying, but I can, but maybe this isn't the time to say it. And uh, if I become righteous, then I become preachy, I become aggressive, I become uh, kind of uh, intimate, I try to intimidate you and, and I uh, uh, abuse you because you're wrong and, uh, and I'm right and I am right. But what, what is the problem is that, that the rightness has become righteousness. I'm right and you're wrong and then this, is, then this, is, this convinces us that, that somehow uh, you are absolutely wrong and I'm absolutely right. Then that makes me self-righteous and, and insensitive and oftentimes very cruel because a lot of cruel things have been done in a righteous way. And it's very powerful. You're wrong, and I'm right. Therefore, you have to apologize to me. Um, I'm not going to apologize to you because you're wrong, and and you're wrong. You have to apologize to me. I'm right. And the, now, what does that do to your mind? If I should do that to you, well, it it it, uh, it makes it almost impossible, doesn't it? Because I'm coming on strong, uh, say, uh, and making out that you are absolutely wrong, and I'm absolutely right, <clears throat> and therefore, unless you're a terribly wise person, I'm making it impossible for you to do the right thing. I'm pushing you into a corner where you can only be—I'm humiliating you, uh, abusing you, and uh, and in the name of being right. So this, like, reflect on this. What, how, why? So much of uh, the way we relate to each other is, uh, is, is so uh, you know why we misunderstand. Why we tend to, to, uh, not really be understanding what what the situation is and what's really going on, because we're very attached to maybe our own sense of righteousness, and our own anger at your wrongness. Somebody told me years ago, they said, if you really want to be able to live in this world, you have to, even if, you know, when two people have a disagreement of some sort, there's some kind of problem that exists between two people or so, then, then this means that, that even though one person may be, uh, you know, may be the, the real cause and, and maybe the real problem, then it always takes two, uh, so that that even if you are not, maybe you're only one percent wrong, and they're ni- and they're ninety nine percent wrong, the uh, skillful thing to do is to apologize, as if you were one hundred percent wrong and they're one hundred percent right. And of course, you have to go against your self righteousness because you know, I'm not going to do that. They think they're right, and they're not. They think I'm wrong. No, this, but that isn't what works. Uh, what happens usually? I find usually when you do this, then people, you give them a chance to think. Well, yeah, yeah I was wrong. If I'm if I'm saying you're wrong and I'm right, then then I'm putting you in a defensive position. So then you have to say, well, you were wrong, and and then you then you you start blaming me or or defending yourself, and then we just quarrel, get into a terrible quarrel. 
But if I take the wind out of the sail by saying, I'm sorry for what I've done, I'm wrong, even if it's only one quarter of a percent, and you're 99 and three quarters percent wrong, and I'm only, <laughs> only a little bit wrong, at least that, that doesn't push you in the corner. That makes you start thinking, admit that maybe you were, maybe you were a little bit wrong, which is a kind of opening up to it. Uh, it's a being, not, not being forced or threatened or, or uh, pushed into a corner where you, you end up just reacting in a, in a, in, through arguments and fighting and quarreling. Contemplate that feeling of, of being right uh, and, and somebody else being wrong. I, when, when, I, when, this, when these things happen in my own life, I like to really look at that feeling and observe it. And, I, and, and it's a very strong feeling. I'm very, I have a lot of self-righteous tendencies. I easily get, I can be very indignant and uh, and uh, there's a very powerful emotion, indignation. So I, I've tried to uh, use that as, a, as, a, as something to recognize uh, and to understand as an experience of life. So when, I get in, when, that, when that kind of emotion arises or when that's triggered off in my mind, I, I contemplate it and I know what it feels like. I know what it's, I know this, what it's like to feel, I'm right, and you're wrong, and you should apologize to me, you should say you're sorry for what you've done, and, uh, and I don't have to say that because I'm right, and, 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 if I, and if I apologize to you, that makes you think you're right, and I'm not going to give you that chance to think that you're right when you're wrong, and it goes on, in this, and you listen to it, uh, and it all sounds so silly. If you really listen to it, it becomes absurd. And you, if you carry it through to to really to really bring it up and uh, in, in a kind of deliberate way by thinking it out and listening to yourself and feeling it, feeling this this anger or this indignation. Then that that feeling will will you're, you're allowing that that emotion to resolve itself. You're you're letting go. Even by deliberately bringing it up and and uh, and listen, but you're listening to it. You're not bringing it up to to make it to intensify it, but to listen and observe it as a condition of your mind. So being right and being reasonable, and I'm not to, to trying to put these down as being uh, kind of uh, as being bad things or to uh, denigrate them in any way, but the identity and attachment to that is, of course, is 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 a delusion. Makes it the, it into a state that deludes us. Even our own righteousness is a is a is a deluded mental state, or our reasonableness. Nothing against reason or being right, but in that attachment and the 
conceit and the and the way we we can easily just uh, justify our own desires through being re- reasonable about everything. Now this is for your contemplation and consideration because I think this is is something that we all suffer from in a society like this and in which we which confuses us it's very confusing because uh, it uh, we don't understand these things we don't we don't know why we why when, when, when we're so caught in these states and uh, we don't really know what what it is we're just kind of overwhelmed and stuck in it and then our then our reactions to others uh, Sometimes you witness two people having a quarrel and they, they're just like, there's no real communication. They're not listening to each other anymore. They're just, they're just uh, accusing each other. They, they, aren't, they aren't trying to find out what's really wrong. They're just, having a, they're just reacting uh, in abusive ways to each other. They don't want to know. They just want to, to have one like a, a contest of wit and you did this. Well, I saw you do much worse than that. How dare you accuse me of doing that when I saw you do something much worse than I've ever done. You don't have any right to accuse me. And then it goes on like that. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, uh, uh, and this sense of being right and, and, and justified and, and by the fact that even if you did something wrong, the person that's accusing you did something even worse. And just think how conceited that is as a, as a position to take on life. You know, how, uh, how dare you accuse me because you're worse than I am. <laughs> Very conceited, if you ask me. <laughs> and yet this is oftentimes how we feel. I think with with uh, men sometimes we're very we have a very strong uh, kind of uh, we feel bewildered at emotions and and frightened of of emotional experiences uh, and I don't think so much I mean I I was thinking the other day that I have I've lived half my life now this year I'm I'm 58 years old. And I left the United States when I was 29. So I've been 29, I've lived 29 years away from the U.S. And, uh, and I left when I was 29. So that makes 58, doesn't it? 58 years. <laughs> so half my life is, uh, the, the, early, the first 29 years was very much uh, an American conditioning experience and a generation that changed. The, the United States, the, the whole atmosphere changed while I was away from the 60s. I left just when it was beginning to, to, to go through a, a great kind of change. Left in, in uh, the very end of 1963 and, and uh, then the, the rest of that decade was this incredible uh, liberated freedom 
time, and I was a monk during that time. I mean, in a keeping all the rules in a Thai monastery. And I used to think, I think I'm missing out on something. <laughs> So, and also the uh, yeah, uh, in the sixties, everything became more liberal, and and the expectations for men and and all that were much more broad. There were wider margins for behavior and for women also. So, uh, speaking from from a person who was very much conditioned by the the more conservative uh, traditional view, the more puritanical style in, in limited forms for masculinity, femininity. Uh, and that means that, that one was, was brought up too. Uh, and men, boys, were not supposed to have emotions and, and you're supposed to be uh, macho and tough. And emotional states were, you, you looked on as weak and you saw women as being weak because they, had, they often cried and, and, had emo- and, and displayed their emotions. So that you thought strength was in the in in not having any, not feeling anything. This was this was the images. These were the messages I was getting as a child, and and so there was a whole kind of resistance and fear of any emotional uh, of my own emotions and and having to deal with other people's emotions, especially women's emotions. Women started crying. You just felt. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> and you're, you just felt bewildered and threatened and, and saw it as weak. So the uh, emotional nature was, was tended to be disregarded and, and repressed. And that all means that the way one related to others was, was never, the emotional side was was always something when it started getting into some kind of emotional experience was was very threatening. So one wanted to to avoid that, and, and, and because of the fear and the inability to understand what was taking place, uh, because the method, the conditioning was to to not not allow that to happen. Strangely enough, in the monastic life, as much as you might think of it as being a kind of disciplined lifestyle that lo- that can look very repressive actually it is a it is a liberating lifestyle now, i don't expect you to believe this but but if you really want to find out i advise you all to join the sangha <laughs> <laughs> and see for yourself <laughs> but if you don't want to you can take my word for it so i'm sure most of you would will be satisfied with that. And the, the, uh, the, the thing is that the, uh, it's, 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 it's regulated in such a way that, that it allows the, these kind of repressed feelings and fears and desires to, uh, we ha- to come into your consciousness, to be able to, to put them in a perspective, to be able to understand the, these forces and conditions that that, that affect our conscious experience. So in the, this retreat, I've been talking a lot about the five khandhas, uh, these five heaps, the five aggregates, uh, as, a, as a kind of uh, teaching about how to, to uh, 
uh, begin to recognize just the, what the, what your mind, how your mind is made up, the different levels or different states of, of just from the body to consciousness to feeling through perception and through and volition, how these uh, are categories or that we can use to try to, to see what actually is taking place, how the mind works. So that the feeling of the feeling and the the experience of feeling is beginning is, is then recognized as feeling rather than as uh, some threatening uh, danger sign, or the way we perceive things, the, the conditioned perceptions of life and the attachment limit us to see things only through very rigid views and very uh, narrow. Uh, uh, Perspectives, like tunnel vision. When you when you're just trying to to look at life through a conditioned perceptions, it's you only it's like blinkers. You can't see. You can only see life in certain ways. This I I became aware of. Uh, I think when I was in graduate school in Berkeley years ago, and 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 I began to see that that uh, that my mind was was conditioned in in a very rigid way, due to the, my background and and uh, ec- and uh, education and and uh, cultural conditioning, was it was a very dualistic mind. It it absolutized every the the opposites. There is, it, I mean, even though this wasn't a kind of formal absolutizing, it was it was more or less an assumption of the mind that. Good and bad were absolute qualities, or and right and wrong were absolutes, and heaven and hell, and and all the, these this dualism from positive to negative tended to be have very fixed opposing uh, properties, and so one's mind, one's conditioned mind, was like a, it had no, it it was it was like a just linear. It it just went up and down. It didn't, it didn't have, in, there was no kind of flexibility to it. Uh, you didn't know how to deal with things, how to, uh, how to uh, deal with, with things that didn't fit into your perceptions. And good, because it was absolutized, had, was, was a very rigid goodness. Uh, and, and had no, and, and therefore anything that didn't fit into the rigidity of that uh, was uh, then seen as, as in the other on the other side as bad, and since bad then tended to be absolutized also because of it, it, the reaction to this narrow perception of goodness. Well, a very clumsy way to think. It's a very uh, and and intuitively there was awareness that this was unbearable because uh, you know I felt intuitively I knew something was wrong. Uh, because this whole way of thinking was was so clumsy and and difficult and and such a and created so much suffering and and uh, misunderstanding. It's very hard to to uh, understand anyone else if you're always if you're absolutizing them with 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 uh, value judgments and yourself. You, you do it to yourself. You do it to others. So in the, uh, the, I think this is uh, in, uh, started reading Krishnamurti and, 
and before I had interest in Zen Buddhism and uh, paradoxes interested me and our way of kind of m- kind of moving the mind around a bit in a different way of trying to limber it up makes it make it a little more flexible because this was a a mind that was just like a up and down it had no there's no the, one couldn't see the complementariness of opposites one saw only opposition that's the conditioned mind only that's not how you actually felt or the emotions tended to react to that because you, what you think and how you perceive then you then you have emotional reactions that that, that come from that so life in, in just perceiving life in such a rigid way was was uh, uh, was great suffering and of course one missed out on a lot because you it makes you insensitive you can't because you have to always live in a way that that tries to support this rigidity and anything that doesn't quite kind of uh, fit into it you ha- you tend to not see it or ignore it or dismiss it Where notice and during this retreat what I've been doing is 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 uh, encouraging a willingness to really look at at feeling and mood uh, without and and noticing any tendency to to make value judgments about the mood you're in or the feelings you're having because it, it's a, it's quite a revelation isn't it when you when you start when you, if you're in a bad mood, you say you're feeling grumpy and negative, and then uh, and then you then you uh, then the then the the, uh, the mood say might be a negative mood. You just there's this kind of feeling of negativity and uh, that brings up maybe anger or grumpiness. And then the it's it's easy then you it's easy to say this is a I'm in a bad mood. Uh, and uh, I'm, uh, and, the, and it goes on into the proliferations of, of what I should be, and whether we're blaming the bad mood on something, or, or we're just dreading, thinking that we're just doing something wrong, and we shouldn't be feeling this way, uh, uh, and it gets very confusing and very complicated. But when we begin to just see the, the mood, to get a feeling for the ability to, to objectify a mood. It's like this. Or physical sensation, pain, or, or uh, uh, being uh, attracted or repelled through the senses. We, when we see this in this way of, of observing it, witnessing it, listening to it, uh, then it, it reveals itself in a truthful way it, because things are as they are and we're not trying to, to, uh, to we're no longer trying to fit everything into uh, an ideal form or, or fixed views or ideas but we're, we're beginning to, to see that we can, can watch, observe and learn from the flow of our lives and that that when we're really mindful, then we, we don't need to perceive everything in, in, uh, as something or, or, or other. We don't need to 
uh, petrified or solidified or absolutize anything because we're we're aware of the flow and the change that is the 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 way things are in the conditioned realm. It's energy. It's it's movement. It's change. When I use the word emotion again, I'll, I try to try to convey how, how I I use that word because. Uh, we all have different, maybe, interpretations of the word, or we might mean different things. And what I use the English word emotion for is the kind of, is the reaction to the feeling. So, like, you feel uh, like there's a feeling of of aversion to something, and then the emotion uh, is, I don't like that. I can't stand that. Though, when you're uh, observing just the feeling, maybe you see something ugly, and you and you say and, and you feel you you say visual, so you see it with your eye, you see something ugly, and and then you 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 feel the ugliness. It's a feeling. In other words, it's the, there's a, a a feeling of withdrawal or or wanting to get get rid of it, and then the emotion. Is is that I don't like this? I don't want this. Uh, uh, take it away, kind of feeling <laughs> of emotional uh, reaction. So w- that's why I think when we w- when we listen to our emotional reactions, we begin to see them as merely uh, conditioning of of, of it's coming from the sense of I am somebody, and I don't like this, and I don't want this. Uh, get it out of here. Uh, how dare you bring such a thing into the room and and um, and on and on it goes into uh, and and we can carry that around you know for hours just by thinking about it you can you know we can go and think five hours later you can think and then you know what he did <laughs> you know like and then when you're angry with somebody you also think you remember everything everything bad they've ever done don't you? And you think, when you're angry with somebody, then you think, you know, well, last year, and five years ago, you did that. <laughs> and somehow, when, with anger, just you can't think of a positive thought. I mean, you can, if you will it, but if you just go by the proliferating tendencies of the mind, then it, when you're angry with somebody, then you can only think of them Think of the bad things that that they do and have done, and their faults and their things you don't like about them. Then become the the, the perceptions that, that arise in your consciousness. When you're when you're in love with somebody, then it's hard to think of anything wrong with them. <laughs> you think even you know even their little defects or big defects can be seen almost as quaint little things that make you love them even more. <laughs> and then when you're angry with them, then suddenly you, you, you think, I've never been able to stand that. I've always, <laughs> ever since I met you, I could never, never put up with the fact that you have bony elbows. <laughs> <laughs> Where when you're in love, you think, and even her bony elbows are adorable. <laughs> The mind works like that, doesn't it? It it 
it, it, one, uh, an emo uh, a feeling like that will trigger off a whole, uh, a whole list of, of, of positive, lovable, adorable qualities or uh, their opposite. I recommend listening a lot to things, just listening to the sound of silence, listening to the sounds in nature, listening to to the wind or the rain or the birds or listening to the traffic. Even like the airplanes flying overhead, listening to just see what, what uh, attracts and repels. Because in, we can, we, we can uh, when we listen, we're paying attention, and we're say if we're if we're here, and we want silence. Say we come here to have silence, and then uh, and then we're sitting here, and everything's silent. And then the anagarika with the lawnmower comes by. We can we can we can be caught up with time to get out of here. Where this is a meditation retreat, he shouldn't be cutting the grass in this, at this time. He's just destroying the silence and the tranquility of my meditation. That's an emotional reaction, isn't it? You hear an ugly sound, because the sound of the lawnmower is, I think, to most of us, uh, an unpleasant sound, isn't it? It's, it's negative impingement. It doesn't, when you hear the lawnmower, you don't want to go and listen more. <laughs> You tend to to want it to to uh, you want to get away from it, and so that that is a, a reflection on on attraction and repulsion, say on sound. And then the emotions are that if you that if you want silence, and then you get this noise, uh, you you think, oh, why did they have to cut the grass this morning, and why you know it's just disturbing the peace and the tranquility of this place and. And, uh, and and that's an emotional reaction to to the sound, and so you can listen both to to the sound and then to your emotional reaction. Don't be. I'm not trying to. Don't misunderstand me that I that I don't want you to have emotional reactions, but I want you to see what what's happening. To be able to listen to your own aversion to and righteous aversion, because you're right in a way. We it isn't very good to. When, when on a meditation retreat, have such a noisy lawnmower going around. I mean, you certainly have. It's certainly reasonable enough. Aversion. It's not being unreasonable, but listening will will uh, will uh, will help you to see what's actually happening, because it doesn't matter that much whether they're cutting the grass uh, and dis- and and disturbing the silence. That's that's something that. Is bearable and is not going to, you know, have any great disastrous effect on anything. Uh, but, but, uh, and you can learn from the disruptions of life and the disappointments or the unfairness. Here in Britain, people uh, have that that demand that that life should be fair. That we we. Uh, we, we feel here that, that we hear many, you know, a, a common kind of complaint. It's not fair. It's almost a whine, isn't it? It's not fair. Like a little child. Remember, 
my older sister, two years older, and she she when when she received a gift and I didn't, I I said it's not fair. <laughs> when you're a child, you don't you're not filled with this mudita or joy at the at others' <laughs> good fortune, especially if it's your sister. <laughs> she. If she gets something, you should get something. It's not fair. And so this, this other, we, we want life to be fair and just. And it should be. But life isn't always going to be that way, is it? it sometimes it's going to be fair, sometimes it's not. But for our practice, we don't need life to be fair because we can also learn from unfairness. In terms of Dhamma, unfairness is not an obstacle or injustice, uh, because we can reflect on it and we can see our, our, the, the emotional reactions when, when injustice has been done or things have been unfair. So that more and more you're, you're kind of awakening to what's actually taking place in your mind, how your mind works. You're not just caught up into it and confused by the different, different, uh, confusing energies and forces that you, you can feel all at the same time. Isn't there's a difference between the heart and the brain? And not just anatomical differences or physiological ones, but speaking metaphorically, uh, in your when you have a that like I've seen uh, one time a woman was talking to me and she was She's a very kind of intelligent, well-educated person, and she started crying. She was being very intelligent and rational in, in her conversation, and what she was talking to me about was very sensible and so forth. And then she just started crying, and then she got confused because she said, "Oh, forgive me, Ajahn Sumedho, this, this crying." She says, "It's so stupid." And she was obviously embarrassed and and really was very embarrassed and didn't want to be crying in front of me. She was trying to to be rational and and reasonable and intelligent uh, and 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 obviously crying isn't being reasonable and intelligent, is it? It's not rational. You don't cry from rational thought thinking because cry, uh, crying is is a, is a thing of the heart, isn't it? It's a feeling of life. It's an emotion, emotional reaction. So it, you can't expect your emotions to be, to be rational or the feelings of life to be sensible and reasonable and rational. That's, it, it's just, it's, that's not their function in nature. They're, the feeling is, is what it is. And maybe it's not fair or it's not just or it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And that's what you're feeling right now. And you can know that, and that's what, like mindfulness, is to, to see that, to, to be able to be open to it and receptive to feeling. If you're, if you're identified as being a reasonable, rational person, and then you, you start emoting, then, then you feel guilty, don't you? Because you, you think of yourself as someone who's not emotional and is cool and and together, and uh, well-educated, and uh, is not going to, to be seen in a kind of, uh, you know, crying, weeping, and, and 
emoting all over the place, a sign of weakness, and and it's it's not you know, it's not how you want to be uh, perceived. You know, maybe you don't want me to see you in that state. Ajahn Sumato would look down on me if he he saw me as a kind of a kind of weepy type person. Because you probably think that I, you know, would would uh, would make some value judgment about it as being some kind of there there she goes, you know, into her moods again. <laughs> <laughs> But it's working both ways, isn't it? Because the one, you know, both are learning. When, if, if, uh, remember, uh, with the with the nuns trying to teach, uh, start a, a kind of order of nuns here in England, and uh, never had to do that in Thailand. As I've said before, nuns were were very separate and never had to even talk to them. So, so that uh, teaching women and nuns and all that was just not a part of my experience in Thailand. And then coming to England, uh, was the expectations were very different because many of the people that were really interested in practice were women. And so one tended to, one's experience was mainly with, with monks and with men and then suddenly you were you were having to deal with with women who also wanted to meditate, and and uh, they and that was brought into. Your experience of life in uh, some interesting emotional reaction. So I remember at first the nuns ordered when we first started it, we were we were just trying to treat them like monks. I remember you know, giving Sister Sundra a, a pneumatic drill to, to <laughs> we were trying to drill holes in the wall down at Chitters because they had to had to uh, it had dry rot and we had to gut the interior of half the building. And you know, take all the plaster and wood out, and then, and then all this stone and brickwork we had to drill holes into it to inject this kind of dry rot uh, chemical, and it was very hard work. And you had to, this big kind of drill, trying to hold it up and drill these holes nine inches apart from each other, and uh, while while hanging onto a ladder, and and of course. The nuns were quite, seemed at first quite willing to try to do all these things, but then it became apparent that that uh, there are certain things they just couldn't do very well. They started getting sick, and and uh, and uh, they just reacted very differently to these kind of projects than the monks. And so then the then the then the monk monks started looking down on them as being unable to to help and do the work because we saw work very much from a particular uh, perspective of of, uh, of, uh, of being a man and we were we were we weren't 
uh, kind of, we, and because maybe the nuns couldn't do that very well, then we tended to make judgments about them. So this was part of, of let's say, looking at what was actually taking place in, in our minds and in the, in the, in the community. One, you know, one was trying to bring this into uh, what, we, what was actually happening, my feeling of, of frustration, because they, they could, they didn't, the nuns didn't react the same way as, as the monks, uh, and the kind of feeling of aversion or frustration or annoyance so one, I trying to keep looking and, and, and witnessing and learning from these experiences, so that that uh, began to to see how conditioned uh, your mind is, and, and how you you tend to to think that the that the way you do things, or the way that men do things, or the way that monks do things, or the way they do them in Thailand, or uh, your perceptions of of how things should be. Or one way, and and when you can't kind of force the world to conform to that and make it happen, then you get very feel very frustrated. I used to feel very frustrated those early years because you're always you're always trying to to make it work and trying to kind of hold it up. I always felt like I was I was trying I was the person that was trying to hold it together all the time, and and that if I fell apart, then the whole thing would collapse. These, these kind of feelings were, were, um, were emotional reactions to, situa- to the situation. But due to the reflectiveness of this meditation, it was also part of the learning process of life. Learning how to establish a Buddhist monastery in a non-Buddhist country. Learning how to, uh, how to uh, say, uh, learn from your experiences in teaching women and and uh, establishing a nun's order and and how to to do it not from ideas of how it should be, even though those those can, you know are guidelines and goals maybe, but learning how to work with the life as you have to experience it and what's actually taking place, what you're actually feeling, what what the the kind of Attitudes, assumptions you're making that influence your your reactions and behavior. This, you, if you develop this sense of listening, paying attention, you you learn a lot because you're 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 actually liberating your mind from from perceiving the world in very fixed personal ways or cultural ways, biased ways, prejudices fixed positions. Now you feel like they're, they're in the monastery there's a, a level of maturity after this was like 12 years ago, 13 years ago, because there is a, a people are learning from it all and, and that uh, there's much more awareness of how to how to uh, work and cooperate and live with each other within the restriction, restraint of monastic convention and and there's more confidence and, and willingness to and an awareness of, of where things do kind of uh, 
get confused or m- things are misunderstood or or where the 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 feelings are being threatened or being taken advantage of or being uh, not being considered or not being respected all this, these kind of of feelings uh, we we are aware of its feelings and and the whole structure is based around uh, say moral responsibility moral restraint and learning how to and developing a, 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 a way of living that is polite and respectful and considerate. Because living uh, with each other, if we don't have etiquette and and we don't uh, and we aren't willing to be sensitive and receptive to what's actually taking place, then of course we we can we tend to just react to each other. And at first, when we like each other, we, we act in nice ways. But then, then you don't you can't like each other all the time. So then, then when you don't like each other, you act in very bad way. <laughs> so liking is is a very you know not to be trusted. Because it, you know, any even someone you love, you can you can not like sometimes. I'm sure you see mothers sometimes with their little kids, and the kids are being horrible little brats, obstreperous and difficult and stubborn, and there's nothing likable about them in that moment. But you know the mother loves them even though she doesn't like them. <laughs> because, because, because in the, main, at the moment you might not like them because there's nothing likable in that moment. If uh, if somebody's being uh, difficult and, and and obstreperous, rude and insulting, at that moment you can't like that. So you don't like that, which but doesn't mean that 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 is, that you don't love. So in its way, putting love in a in in that in that more universal form, uh, which is is transcendent. Uh, purity of the mind that is not going to be destroyed by the immediate emotional reaction or the the feeling that you have in the moment, which has which is due to causes, isn't it? So, say if, if your children are being very uh, nasty and difficult and and insensitive and selfish, say those are those are not likable qualities in the moment, are they? You can't you can't like those those kind of qualities, but you can still love the the child. And to to be able to see the difference, you know, is is the development of wisdom. Because pe- people do get confused. Mothers get very confused sometimes about their feelings because, you know, sometimes they want you, you might really want to murder your child, and then then if you and if you're taking that in a personal way, then you you can feel very guilty about it because uh, that's a very you can say that's a very bad thing to feel towards somebody you should love. But when you but when you contemplate and understand with a more profound and insightful understanding of Dhamma, then 
there's no problem. This is a flaw of life, and, and therefore it's, it's uh, even wanting to murder somebody is still Dhamma. When you see it, there's what arises ceases. It's in nature, it's dukkha, it's anatta, it's not self. And that ability, that ability to to reflect and and to use wisdom in this way is is the is the transcendent, the enlightened state of being. It's it's and it's all when we talk about being aware and paying attention, then in that very state of attentiveness, of being alert, aware, attentive, a listener, a witness, there, then there is the mind, you're, you're in, there's, there's an enlightened mind. And then immediately, if you try to find it, you're caught again in... In the in the habits, isn't it? Where is it? What happened to it? And uh, am I enlightened or not? <laughs> not 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 a matter of becoming someone who's enlightened, but in being that way more and more, and trusting in 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 being mindful. And and being mindful, then you then you uh, being a, and mindfulness then is best seen in terms of. The listening, the attentiveness, watching, and reflecting on the way things are. We reflect on the way things are in terms of Dhamma, not on terms of personal prejudices. Like if some something is 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 unfair, say some, somebody is being very unfair and unreasonable about something, and being very difficult and and unfair. Your personal feeling is uh, it's not fair and that person shouldn't be like this and you're right. It's not fair and that person shouldn't be acting like this and you're right. But in terms of Dhamma, what is it? You, you're listening to your, your own sense of that person is wrong, he shouldn't be like this, shouldn't be acting like this, it's not right. You're seeing this, this re- emotional reaction you're listening to it in, in terms of Dhamma rather than in, in uh, perpetuating it as a, as a reasonable state of mind to grasp and, and hold on to and be carried away by. And it doesn't mean that you, you just put up with unfairness and kind of, a kind of stupid uh, resignation to, to, uh, to the misery of life, but it does help you to, to put it in a perspective in which you're you're not just uh, kind of overwhelmed and caught up in anger and resentment, uh, and 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 just and 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 where, where you lose your mindfulness and where you where you will act maybe in a in a way that will just increase the problem. When we act out of anger and aversion, we tend to increase, cause more confusion, more problems. You can see the. You hear the news from Yugoslavia all the time, and and just the the, the way that that the somebody kills somebody, and then then they kill somebody, and, and just the Bosnian Muslims and the Bosnian Serbs, and and uh, they're all self-righteous, 
they're all feel that the world is being unfair to them. Uh, they all justify what they're doing, and they feel very angry. The fact that, like the Serbs, uh, feel very angry. The fact that there's these sanctions against them, Serbia, and then then it's not fair because, and then the Bosnian Muslims uh, feel that it's not fair because the Serbs have taken over their country and and uh, nobody's listening to anyone. They're merely they're merely accusing each other. Uh, of all the terrible things that they do to each other. There's no way to solve that problem. Is it? Because nobody is aware of what the problem really is. They blame it on each other. Probably the best you can do is kind of just through sanctions and threats and power struggles kind of kind of bash away to, to get some kind of compromise out of it that nobody will like and everybody will resent what they're trying to do. <laughs> but that's a, that's a common enough human reaction, isn't it? It's just a, a battlefield of self-righteous uh, emotions and blame and resentment and grudge-bearing and then trying to get even, trying to take revenge. So that's the realm of emotional reaction, isn't it? That whole realm is like that. It's just, it's it's uh, it's a realm that can be really demonic and and brutal and hideous and painful. So in our uh, our intention here in the, this retreat to to try to understand what the real problem is. Real problem is in here, isn't it? It's a confusion and not understanding things as they are. Not understanding why life is this way or why you feel the way you, you feel and and what it is all about, then of course you 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 don't know what what's happening. And so you, one tends to just go along with, with what somebody else says or just follow the, the leader or the flock or because you don't, you, don't, you don't know and you hope somebody else does know, that somebody that acts confident and seems to know, then you follow them and they can lead you to do pretty horrible things. But when you're awakening like this to Dhamma, then then you 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 see the subtleties of 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 attraction and repulsion, the whole sense of being in a form like this, of, of being a subject uh, in a in a form that is totally sensitive and feels, and is going to be. And, and bring you a lot of, of discomfort and pain in your in your lifetime. And you need to really understand it, not just try to to uh, you know protect yourself from from an ignorant attitude. But as you understand it as a as in the reality of it and the profundity of it, then. It, there's no problem anymore. 
and the problems that do arise, you can solve those problems. You, can, you know how to, to solve problems you, you, because you know the cause. You know when to advance or retreat, when to act or not act. And it all comes, it becomes clear more on the intuitive level when to, when to say something or when not to, when to do something or when not to do anything. And that, that is through, through the trusting in, in your intuitive awareness and, and being able to uh, uh, act or not act according to time and place rather than according to views and opinions. That's why uh, moral precepts, in, say when we take moral precepts, they're Notice they're put in terms of precepts. Notice the psychology there is, is not a commandment. Now we're used to thinking of morality as a commandment, aren't we, from the Jewish-Christian attitude. It's God sitting up on the high seat, ex-cathedra, thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not kill. That's a commandment. From that, Notice the position. Is, is God from above command, making a commandment? And that, so that's how we tend to, to interpret the, 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 the precepts, moral precepts in Buddhism. We tend to see them in that attitude of a commandment. So, in, 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 in monks, training monks with Vinaya, they tend to see Vinaya always in terms of moral commandments. And, and, and if you take Vinaya as a commandment, it, it becomes a real hassle, because there's so many of them. <laughs> 227 commandments. <laughs> there's more than that. They have 227 rules in the Padimokha, Discipline. That's the basic discipline for training of a bhikkhu. And if you look at 227 commandments, your mind you just, you know, it's the, it's a, when you're looking at it from that position of, of God saying, "Thou shalt not," then it, it is a heavy trick. <laughs> but if you look at it in, now like in, in Buddhist psychology. They're, they're put in terms of precepts, training precepts, standards, rather than commandments from, from God. They're, they're put in the perspective of, of guidelines for behavior, of, of reflective guidelines and limits for action and speech, so that you, you can... Uh, uh, then you, you take those into account. The precepts are, are there to to reflect from their guidelines and uh, to help you to, to say, look at what you're actually feeling. If you want to murder somebody and then you have the precept, bana di bata, I will, I will refrain from intentionally taking the life of another human being. And, uh, and notice the, the wording, I will refrain from intentionally taking the life of another human being. And so it's, a, I, it's like a, a kind of 
reminder and a, and a guideline. I will refrain. It's not that I'm being commanded and I'll be punished if I murder somebody. It's a, it's a reminder of that, that this is our this is what we was our intention in regards to action. So I will I will not intentionally murder anyone or kill anyone. Is the is the is the precept. Then sometimes emotionally you want to murder somebody. See so then but that is is not breaking the precept unless you do it. So the precept keeps you from doing it, doesn't it? Uh, I can't murder that person because I've taken this precept. (laughs) It works. I haven't murdered anybody. (laughs) But in uh, being facetious, but the the um, the notice the the emphasis is is a reflective one and uh, and therefore it when then it's up to us to to be able to to do what is appropriate or not do morality in buddhism is is like the sila is regards to action and speech it's not it's not mental uh, where in in the west we 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 tend to think of even of, of bad thoughts, dirty thoughts, or evil thoughts as immoral, as being immoral. But in terms of, of Buddhist uh, psychology, uh, morality has to deal only with action and speech. So that, that's why the precepts are guidelines for action and speech. Then, then the thoughts that we might have, we can see in terms of Dhamma. So if you have bad thoughts, Rather than feeling you're you're an immoral person or have broken your precepts, you're merely rec- you're really liberating your mind from those thoughts through reflecting on them in terms of dhamma. What arises ceases and is not self. So you might have a thought of wanting to a desire to murder somebody, but in but in in and then but then you see it if you're seeing it in terms of yourself, then you you see it as, as you, that that's a bad thing, you're a bad person. Or in terms of Dhamma, you see you're, you're, you're liberating your mind from that particular emotional reaction through accepting it and letting go of it. So you can see the, the wisdom in the Buddhist, Buddhist training uh, and the psychology behind it is, it is, uh, it's, it allows us to. It's our choice. It's, it's, it's what we rise up to. We're not in this life. We're not doing this because, uh, of, we're not trying to be. We're not intimidating people, threatening them. Uh, that unless they practice meditation, they're going to hell. You're trying to to encourage people to to take on the responsibility for their lives and to to live their lives in a way that they respect themselves, they learn, they understand, they, they, they develop wisdom so that at the end of your life you'll, ha- you'll, have, you'll look back and you'll, you'll feel you have not wasted it. 
that you've learned the lessons that you've needed to learn from it. You've you've uh, you've uh, realized you've developed the wisdom. And then, of course, there's the death. Is nothing to fear then. Death is only not frightening. I think if you if you if you haven't learned very much from your life and you don't know what's going on, and then suddenly you're faced with dying, and you, and you think this isn't fair. <laughs> I don't want this. Get rid of it for me. Or if you if you've learned. Dhamma, and there's wisdom there, then death is part of the process, isn't it? It's the final moment, the great, the liberating, joyful moment of, of being able to, to, to uh, let go of this mortal coil. At least I see it like that, I'm looking forward to it. Golly, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Because death is not uh, like uh, like something bad that shouldn't be, or frightening, or or uh, something that that uh, I find uh, just as a perception something that that uh, is is ugly or frightening. I see it as 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 the final success of of practice, where where death is then. Uh, you know, when one can, uh, when there's the opportunity to relinquish the total, the 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 body and all the the, the uh, as, as we say, let go more and more in daily life through mindfulness and 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 develop that kind of wisdom. Then, when it's time to let go of this this body, you don't you don't like you're not trying to get rid of the body. But a time will come when it's time to let go of it, and you'll know that. You won't be lost in fear and desires and delusions around it. Because at that moment, you'll have the wisdom, mindfulness to know when to, to let it all go. And that doesn't sound like a, a miserable state of, to be in, does it? What happens after death? Doesn't matter if, that, if you're mindful, you'll find out <laughs> when it happens. Take it as it comes. 